Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing in our teaching series that we began a few weeks ago on the parables of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be looking at probably one of Jesus' most famous parables of all time, the Good Samaritan. And um, if, uh, even if you don't identify as a follower of Jesus, if you hear that someone is called a Good Samaritan, you know that that is a compliment because that means that this person cares about other people. They help other people, even strangers in distress. If you are a good Samaritan, labeled as a good Samaritan, you are the person that stops on the side of the road to help that person change their tire, or you're the person that helps feed the hungry, or you're the person that helps grandma keep from getting run over by a reindeer when she's crossing the road. You are that person that just has compassion about other people. But you know, as we're going into this parable, I want to ask the question, is the main point of what Jesus is trying to get across here is that we need to be good Samaritans and help other people who are in need? Is that the primary point of this passage? And um, the only way that we can know that is if we look at context. Now, we talk about that a lot when we're talking about studying the Word of God. We have said that context, Colton, is king. Context is king when you are looking at a passage. We need to understand why did God, in the first place, who wrote this through the Holy Spirit and in in our book today in Luke, why did he have Luke write this down? And a couple other questions we need to ask is, who is Jesus telling this parable to? And then why is he telling it? If you just read that parable by itself out of context, you're going to come away going, I need to love people more. And we do. But that's not the point of this parable that we're going to see in just a minute. So if we're going to see what, what the context is, we've got to begin with verse 25. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter, 20, uh, chapter 10, verse 25. I have entitled my message this morning, The Perfect Neighbor. So if you have your Bibles, or you can follow along with us on the screen. Verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's two things I want to point out here as we're beginning, as we're looking at context. And that is that this lawyer would have been an expert in the Mosaic law. He would have known it like the the back side of his hand, front and backwards. And so when uh, when he's questioning Jesus here, it's very doubtful that he's wanting to try to learn from our Lord. It's probable that he's very likely he's trying to trip him up. He's trying to see what he knows and then find some flaw in his teaching. Secondly, I want us to notice what he asks here. He says, what shall I do? to inherit eternal life. In other words, how must I live my life if I am going to take part in the inheritance promised to Abraham and his descendants? Now, we would say it this way. What must I do to go to heaven? 
when I die? That's how we would say it in our culture. And this is a question that is a very important question that everybody needs to to ask. If you've studied the New Testament, if you've studied the Gospels, this is a question that comes up several times in the Gospels. Uh, The rich young ruler asked this question this question. In John chapter 6, the crowds ask Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? What do we got to do to make God happy with us? And so this is a great question that we need to ask. But it's interesting that uh, he asked Jesus what, what you must do. And in verse 26, Jesus takes the mic and he gives it right back to him. He says this, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Notice that Jesus is now the one that is testing. He's testing the lawyer. He's like, well, you tell me, what do you see? And in verse 27, the lawyer says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will inherit eternal life. Now, to those of us who understand the gospel, does this not sound heretical, what Jesus is saying right here? It sounds like Jesus is teaching a works salvation. And you know why? Because he is. He is teaching a works salvation right here. Years ago, uh, I was talking to my youngest son, Adoniram. Uh, he was eight at the time, and we were going through this passage. And I said, you know what Jesus is teaching here? Jesus is teaching that you have got to be perfect if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And, and I remember he looked at me and he went, Dad, quit tricking. <laughs> and that's, that's the way we say joke. I said, I'm not tricking. And so what we did was we went back through the passage and... We kept looking at it, and eventually he said, okay, then no one is going to go to heaven. And I said, why? He said, because nobody can love God with all they are and love their neighbor with all they are perfectly. And I was like, boom, you get the point here that Jesus is making. Jesus is saying, if you can do this, if you can live perfectly, then you can inherit the kingdom of God. Of heaven. My eight year old son got this, but the lawyer, this self righteous expert, does not get it. He totally misses it. How do we know this? Because when we look at uh, verse 29, he should have said, now before we get to 29, what he should have said when he heard this was he, if he had gotten it, he would have said, there's no way I can do this. I need a savior. But in verse 29, he says this, but he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, it seems to me that he's saying this. He doesn't say, how do I love God with all my heart, soul, and strength? It seems like he's saying, okay, I get that part. I'm doing that. I'm loving God with all my heart, soul, and strength. And I will love my neighbor. I just need to make sure I know who they are. That, That seems to be what he's asking here, but he's totally missing it, and he's asking the wrong question. Now, that is the context of this passage. Jesus is talking to him, and verse 30 is the very next verse. He is going to tell the parable. Now, he's, he's, the man has asked, who is my neighbor? But we're going to see that Jesus is going to try to help this man 
see something much greater than who his neighbor is. Okay? So who is this being, uh, who is this being spoken to? It's being spoken to a self-righteous uh, lawyer. And why? It's because he's self-righteous. And that's the context of, this, of why he's telling this parable. He's wanting him to see something. So let's see what Jesus is trying to teach us here. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, even to this day, is a dangerous, narrow, rocky passageway. You can go there to this day. It's about 17 to 20 miles from Jerusalem. It drops about 3,600 um, feet in elevation. And it's, it's the perfect highway for robbers and bandits to set up shop to attack those who are going through, through this narrow uh, passageway. And, you know, just like everybody in this room knows that you should not take your three-year-old son or daughter and drop them off downtown and let them play around by themselves, everybody in that day knew that you don't travel alone on this road from, from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's, it's dangerous. And this man should have known better. He would have known that. He should have known better. So in, in one sense, it's his fault that he's in this predicament. And let's go on and, and go to verse 31 and see what happens here. Now, this, this verse right here, just so you'll know, Calvinists really struggle with this verse. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by. If you didn't get that one, um, it's okay. Come talk to me afterwards. All right. And when he saw him, he passed by. Let me start over because you you're not listening to this verse anymore. So now by chance, <laughs> I got so many things going through my head right now. The Arminian priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, anyone, any of the Jewish uh, in the audience that were listening would have immediately made the connection that these two Jewish leaders who knew and taught the law, they should have stopped and helped their Jewish brother. They would, have, they would have known this because the law, and we went over this a few weeks ago, that the law teaches us if you see your neighbor, well, actually, if you see your enemy in a ditch, what do you, what do, you do? Stop and help them. This is very, anyone that, and we, we know this also, that, that, we should, that you should stop and help someone. But they didn't. And the question that you, that you have to ask is, why didn't they who knew the word not obey the word? And I'm sure that they had their reasons, like we all do. Um, if you were to talk to them, they probably would say safety reasons, right? What if, this, uh, if you came to church this morning and, and you saw someone laying in the middle of the road naked? This guy was naked and covered in blood and unconscious. What would you do? You probably would go, huh, I'm going to call 911, right? Would you stop and get out of your car? You might. Maybe you would. Uh, I wouldn't. I'm just being real. I would be like, man, this guy, what if this person's faking it? Now, he's going to great extremes to fake it, but what if he's faking it? 
What if, he, what if he's got something that I could catch, I could get sick? I've got a family I've got to take care of, so I, I better not get involved. Or they, maybe they're thinking, someone else will do it. Here's a need that needs to be met. I could meet it, but you know what? Somebody else is going to do it. Or maybe they were thinking, this, is not conven- this wouldn't be convenient for me. And the truth is, if this guy was dead and the priest stopped and touched him, then he would, the priest would become ceremonially unclean, which means that he would have had to go into quarantine for one to two weeks and would have been taken out of his life routine. And so, in, in a lot of ways, this man's condition was an inconvenience to the priest's ministry. Now, Jesus is going to reveal that the reason that they didn't stop is because they lacked something, okay? We'll see it in uh, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, let's stop right there. When he saw him, any Jew listening now would have been at the edge of their seat at the mention of the Samaritan. And we've talked about this before, but the Jews and the Samaritans were enemies with one another. The Jews despised the Samaritans because they considered them to be defiled half-breeds because they were Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles. And in their minds, in the Jews' minds, they had corrupted themselves. They had corrupted their bloodline. They had corrupted their Jewish religion. And so they were kind of like this second, not even second rate, just this despised race. If you'll remember in the book of John, when the Jews are trying to insult Jesus, what do they call him? They say, you're a Samaritan. They call him a Samaritan. So there's a, there's a great conflict going between these two nations. And so the Jewish listener would have been curious to know what kind of evil is this Samaritan going to bring upon their helpless and susceptible Jewish brother. And I think it would be kind of like if I was telling the story that, you know, an American soldier was injured badly on a road in Afghanistan. But a member of ISIS, a member of Al-Qaeda, as he journeyed, came to where the American was, and when he saw him, he what? Well, this, let's look at what the Samaritan does. It says, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He had compassion on him. He felt pity for him. He was, something inside of him was concerned about this this person. He had a heartfelt burden. And that's one thing that the Levite and the rabbi lacked. That's what kept them ultimately from taking action and doing what they should have done. Now, let's look at, look at what the Samaritan does. Verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus says, which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, 
He can't even say the Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now that's the parable that Jesus has just shared. And I want to remind us of the context, okay? So we start out with the lawyer coming to Jesus and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you tell me. He says, love God, love people with everything you are 24-7. Jesus responds, that's right. If you can do this, then you will inherit eternal life. But it goes in one ear and out the other of the, of the lawyer. He doesn't have ears to hear. He actually thinks he can do what he just said and that he's doing what he just said. And so he asks another question, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable. But notice at the end of the parable, Jesus, Jesus doesn't go, so your neighbor is the guy laying in the road that needs help. That isn't what Jesus says, does he? He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? We're all neighbors, but which one of them, by their actions, proved to be what the law is requiring? And the problem is, is that the lawyer believes that he can love his neighbor. He believes that he can do what the law is requiring him to do at the level that, he can, that, that the law is requiring it. But in context... Jesus is not answering that question, who, who the neighbor is. It, it, it is answered in this parable, but that's not what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to get at a heart issue within the lawyer. He's trying to help the lawyer to see what the lawyer thinks about himself. The lawyer thinks, I'm not that bad. Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I mean, have you ever heard someone say that? Or have you ever said that? I'm not perfect. I'm human. Nobody's perfect. But, but I'm not that bad. And, you know, if we walk away from this parable thinking that it's teaching us that we need to care for those others in need, and that we think that that's the main point, then we've missed the main point. Because it's meant to make us realize that we are not living up to what it takes to inherit eternal life. I want to look at the Samaritan. The neighbor that Jesus describes here is perfect. And I want to look at the way he cares for this man. Jesus goes to great extent to make sure that he paints a picture for us to to help us understand what it looks like, okay? So I've got four gospel truths. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. In this, the perfect neighbor, number one, is compassionately merciful. Verse 33 again, it says that when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He felt pity for him and was deeply concerned, and so he extended mercy to his enemy. It's his enemy that he's helping. Instead of pointing the finger and saying, it's your fault, you should have known better. You have made your bed, now lie in it. This man doesn't ask questions. He has compassion. Secondly, what I want us to see is that the perfect neighbor is touchable. Look at verse 34. It says, he went to him. 
He went to him. He left the pathway. He put down what he was doing. He took a detour. He left his interests behind and entered into this broken man's world. He got close enough. He got close enough to see whether he was alive or dead. He got close enough to understand the man's condition that he was in. He got close enough to touch him. He got close enough to get his hands bloody. And this is something that we need to understand, that we cannot truly love our neighbor from a distance. You can't just do it by by posting a great quote on social media. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but that shouldn't be all that we do. We've got to get into people's lives in meaningful ways in order to love meaningfully. The third thing I want us to see here, that the perfect neighbor is unreasonably generous. I chose that word unreasonable for a purpose because to me, this, what this man does is not reasonable for what, what I would do. Um, he laid down his life to save the life of his enemy. And, and, and in some ways, that doesn't make sense to me. I have a difficult time, and I'm just going to be transparent. I have a difficult time having compassion on someone that's a stranger to me. There's, there's two situations in my life that showed me this. One time we were out in Leicester, or Leicester, wherever you're from, driving. And this car was coming in, in the other lane, and their tire blew. They went up on the bank, spun, and flipped over upside down. And, and I saw this live. Kelly and I were together, and I saw this live. So what did I do? Okay, I knew I was supposed to stop, so I stopped. But inside, everything in me is so, like, scared. What am I going to do? So I, I kind of slowly walked over, and fortunately, there was somebody there that was not like me, and they ran over to the car and started talking to them. They prayed with them, and I stood at the distance, you know, kind of back, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But inside, I was like, praise you, Lord. I don't know what I would have done. I didn't know this person. It, it was just, like, scary. Now, there's another situation in my life where someone that's one of our family members, someone that I really love, flipped their car. And the moment that we got the call, I jumped in my truck, spun out of my yard, tore up my yard, drove on the highway, got there, jumped out of the truck, went over to the window. The, 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 you couldn't open the doors. And so I took this hand right here, and I smashed it through the window because the, the gas was dripping. I was like, this thing could blow up. That's why I can't use it anymore. But I went in there, and I pulled them out, and I carried them away. Have you ever seen Die Hard? <laughs> Boom! You know. Okay, I made up some of that. All right, so what, all right, what happened was that we couldn't open the door, so I just opened the latch in the back, okay, and it came down. I crawled in, but I crawled in with no hesitation. Why? Because I had compassion for someone that it made sense to me. I cared about that person. It's easy for me to have compassion. It's easy for me to take a bullet, to jump on the grenade when it's my brother, someone that I care for. But that's not what happens. That's not what's happening in this story. This is his enemy. This is someone that hates him. Verse 34, let's look at again what he does. He went and bound up his wounds. 
He doesn't just call 911 and wait for the ambulance. He gets down there with him and poured oil and wine on him. Then he set him on his own animal and personally brought him to the inn. So he's walking now on the way. And he personally, listen, he didn't just drop him off at the ER and leave. He stays with him. He took care of him. And the next day, so he stays with him all night to make sure he's okay. The next day, he took out two of his denarii, which would have allowed him to stay there for two months. And he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. That is not reasonable to me. He takes full responsibility for this man's care to make sure that he comes back. This is ridiculous to me. This is unreasonable generosity. And please tell me who loves like this all of the time, all the time. I'm not talking about occasion. I'm talking about all the time loves like this, which leads me to our fourth gospel truth, and that is that it's not you or me. That's what Jesus wants this lawyer to see. Because, you know, if you're like me, you have the tendency to want, like I just did, you want to make yourself the hero of a story. And sometimes we can do that with the scriptures. And one of the things I love about our children's ministry is that we, are, we want to teach our children from a very early age that the word of God is one story made up of many different accounts. And that in these accounts, a lot of times there are heroes in them that are meant to point us to Jesus. That we're not that hero. This is a hero that points to Jesus. We want our children to see that that book is about Christ. That, that book is about the true hero of the scriptures. And sometimes, you know, we can read ourselves into the story, and, you know, I'm David. You know, I'm Moses. You know, I'm, I'm, da- I'm Daniel in the lion's den. I would, you know, that type of thing. We're, but let me just say, we are in the story. We're usually in the story, but Jesus is ultimately the hero of the story that we need to see. So in this account, I want you to ask yourself, who are you? Where do you see yourself in the story? What do you, who do you most relate to? And to be honest, I can really relate to every person in here except one. Um, the robbers, I can relate to them because there have been times that I have treated my fellow neighbors poorly and left them hurt and injured. I can relate to the priest and the Levite because there have been times in my life where I've seen a need and I just kind of turned a blind eye to it. I could have met that need, but I turned a blind eye to it and I walked on. And I can even, you know, I can even relate to the innkeeper because I will take care of people as long as I know I'm being compensated for it. So there's, there's times that, that I can even relate to the innkeeper. But if we're going to see growth, in our lives, if we're going to see, listen, Reach Life Church, if we're going to see growth in here, and I'm not talking about numerical growth, I'm talking about if our hearts are going to expand and grow, if we are going to grow in spiritual maturity, then one of the things that we have to do is we've got to see the point that Jesus is making in this parable. We've got to see what he's trying to help the lawyer to see. We've got to see our true condition. We've got to see who we really are. And, you know, the thing about it is, it's bad. Um, We are like the wounded traveler. 
That's who we should see ourselves as. We've been beaten, we've been stripped, we've been left for dead by sin. By our own sin, by bad choices, by rebellion against God, by things we've done, and by the sins of others, things that people have done to us. There's times that we have been wounded by others. And like the wounded traveler, we have to come to a point, and this is what Jesus is trying to help this lawyer see, you've got to come to a point where you see that you can't help yourself. You can't save yourself by your works. You've got to come to a place where that you see that if someone does not show mercy and compassion on you, then you will perish in the way. We need to see that we need a good Samaritan to pass by. You know, I wonder who that is. I think it's clear that Christ is the one who passed by. Look at what Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. See that? Not a result of works, not by what you did to inherit eternal life. Why? So that no one will boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why? Has Jesus had compassion on us? In order to win our hearts. In order to win our hearts that we might turn from ourselves, that we might turn from our sin, and that we might be reconciled to God, that we might live our lives no longer for ourselves, but that we might live our lives for him. But in order to do that, listen, in order to do this, we are, as this passage said, we are to, we're created for good works. But before we get to the good works, we've got to see that what's on the screen here, that Jesus is compassionately merciful. When he saw us, his enemies wounded and left for dead, he had compassion on us. Number two, we've got to see that Jesus is touchable. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then number three, we've got to see that Jesus is unreasonably generous. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, and this is the part 
It's talking about the unreasonable love. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps someone would go into a car for someone when they love them. That's what that's saying. Though perhaps for a good person, someone would dare to die. If you think that they're worth dying for, you'll die for them. That's not God's love. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. That's what we sang about this morning. That's what we rejoice in week after week. We, re- we rejoice that we need a Savior. And not only do we need one, but that we have a Savior who is Jesus Christ. So in closing, let me just ask you this. If I were to give you the mic and have you answer this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What would you say? There's two answers. Number one, you could say, I'm going to live perfectly. I'm going to live perfectly. But you know what? We've already blown that one, haven't we? So let's go to number two. You can confess that you can't do it. Fall on your face before Jesus and receive by faith what Jesus has already done. You know that's what we sang about this morning, what he's done? What he's done. That's what we always want to come back to, what he's done. Because when we understand what he's done, we experience his compassion. We experience his love. When we believe in him, basically what we're letting him do is clean and bandage our wounds and to fill us with eternal life. Once we do that, once we experience his compassion, then we will go and do likewise. He who has ears to hear, let us hear. Amen.